This is the uh, third part of the Coherence series. Hi there, Hi listeners. there listeners. Welcome, Welcome to, to Coherence. Coherence. <laughs> My name is Amanda DiBattista. And I'm Andrew Mark. Next stop, York University Commons. Our thanks to Niche for funding this pilot series and to Nature's Past for hosting us. Each episode will showcase thoughts from the York University Faculty of Environmental Studies describing the intersection of culture and environment. Welcome to the third episode of Coherence. We're calling this one Resistance for Breakfast, Hegemony, Arts, and Environment. This is a big step for us because now we're really launched. Sean K. Raj at Niche helped us to set up our own independent podcast subscription feed, and with two episodes down, we have a really good sense of our workflow. It's been a challenge to learn how to work with this medium and to measure its impact academically. Naturally, our very supportive supervisors want to make sure we are on the right track with our studies. And rightly so, because these episodes represent hours and hours of work distributed across an entire year. We thought we'd finally take the time to briefly introduce ourselves and how this project came about. So I'm Andrew, and I have an undergraduate degree from the McGill School of Environment and a master's in ethnomusicology from York University. Presently, my research concerns eco-musicology as it relates to community resilience and ecological consciousness. It makes for an unusual skill set, and when I decided to do this project, Coherence, I knew I would need to partner with someone who knew about narrative and scripting. And I'm Amanda, and my academic career has been a wonderfully winding road from biology to anthropology, environmental education, and eco-criticism. My work now focuses on the relationship between creative writing and place. When Andrew approached me about this project, I immediately said yes, even though I had to admit that I'd never actually listened to a podcast, because it sounded like such an interesting way to challenge my own writing practice. And, of course, Andrew has such an eclectic skill set that I was excited to have the opportunity to work with him directly. We've learned a lot in the last few months about how we want our episodes to work, at least ideally. And we've learned about what we're capable of with the time that we've budgeted, given our very limited financial resources. We've received useful feedback, but we can always use more, so please write to us with your suggestions. We hope to air your actual feedback in some participative fashion and time, either in our episodes or on our webpage. So we also welcome recorded feedback. Please contact us if you're interested in providing such feedback, and we'll coordinate with you to make it happen. Okay, so enough of the front matter. Here we go. In this episode, which focuses on environmental art practices, you'll hear from several people from York's Faculty of Environmental Studies. Heather McLean. Hi, I'm Heather McLean. A PhD candidate. Chris Cavanaugh. Well, I'm Chris Cavanaugh. A storyteller and professor. Edie Steiner. My name's Edie Steiner. An artist and PhD candidate. And Deborah Barnt. Uh, my name is Deborah Barnt. A professor and our community arts practice coordinator. FES has a long history of struggling to integrate art into the workings of the faculty. This commitment is evident in the space the faculty occupies. As a large collaborative painting hangs in the lobby, alumni art lines the main hallway, and the zigzag gallery on the main floor features a constantly rotating display of current student artwork. In thinking about this episode, it occurred to us that our work on this podcast series is only possible because of the support for art and alternative media that those that have gone before us have fostered. 
We received support from the Wild Garden Media Center, a space that is named in memory of Diane Marino, a dynamic and critical educator, activist, and artist who worked in FES until her death in January 1993. Although Andrew and I never knew her, we sense echoes of Diane's presence throughout the faculty uh, and in this episode of Coherence. Much of Diane's work aimed to make visible what she called hidden cracks in our consent, and much of the discussion that follows builds upon her theoretical work. Diane developed modes of relating the Gramscian notion of hegemony to the arts and the environmental movement. Her student, Chris Cavanaugh, participated in some of this work, and when we spoke with him, he suggested three particular modes in which hegemony relates to the arts. It is through this framework that we are going to approach our discussion about environmental arts. Here's Chris. Well, I'm Chris Cavanaugh, and what I'm up to in the faculty is teaching a lot of courses this fall. I've been teaching the Popular Education for Social Change grad class for over 10 years now. The first, uh, the first class of that that I ever taught was on, believe it or not, Tuesday morning, September 11th, 2001. For several years, I've been teaching the undergrad Popular Education for Social and Environmental Justice class, and then this year I've taken on a couple of sabbatical relief positions. I came to study with Diane Marino. And so Diane knew she was dying and only had another few years left. And she had already outlived the expectations of many doctors. And so having worked with her in the community doing arts work and such, and we, I had just lost a job doing anti-apartheid work and thought, you know, great, let's, it's a chance to work with Diane. So that was one of my inspirations. Secondly, in 1991, I guess, when I started, I had, I had about a dozen years of ceaseless activism, working for the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, working in anti-poverty work, human rights work. I had just been working, working, working. And so it was a chance to take a pause and, and reflect on all of that. So I came, uh, uh, Diane got me into the master's program despite my lack of a bachelor's. And it was a chance, as I said, to work with her and reflect on what I had done for 12 years, what worked and didn't work. And, and then when it came down to focusing on something specifically, what made the most sense was to focus on popular education and storytelling. And storytelling in particular in, focused on how we use stories to tell the stories of our lives what I've later come to call Foucault's term, the arts of the self. So storytelling is an art of the self, if you will. So I was on a slow train. It took me several years to do that. Diane died in the middle of it, which was expected. And, and so I, in some ways I carried on some of her theoretical work as well, in particular the work that we shared around applying Gramsci's theory of hegemony to popular education and arts and education in general. So we asked Chris to lay out his understanding of hegemony. There's a few different ways to look at hegemony. And one way to look at it is as society ruled by common sense, where common sense is in fact a mishmash of stuff. We tend to treat common sense as a positive thing, but common sense isn't by, it just look at the word. It, it, common sense doesn't say it's positive, it just says it's common. Yeah. 
And what's common is uh, there's a lot of nonsense that's common. There's a lot of bad sense that's common. And there's some good sense that's common. And so we live in a society ruled by common sense, which tends to disappear the fact that in our common sense is a lot of bad sense and a lot of nonsense. And so, for instance, I would call the degree to which we accept poverty as well as obscene wealth bad sense. But it's common sense to people that there's a few people who are wealthy because, well, aren't they smart and ambitious and entrepreneurial? And there's a whole bunch of people who are poor uh, because, as common sense would dictate, well, there's just a lot of people who lack ambition or they're lazy, you know? So when you allow a society to be ruled by common sense, when you've achieved that, that, that degree of common sense, you can lay back on having to assert uh, the the one of the monopolies that the state uh, maintains, and that's the monopoly on the legitimate use of force or violence. And so we accept a society in which uh, cops and 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 militaries and so on uh, are the only legitimate users of violence, and then we you know criminalize, penalize, legislate consequences for non-legitimate uses of violence. And and that that's the way things are run is just common sense to people. And and that a democratic society uh, needs all of that and therefore needs growing prisons and growing police budgets and whatnot. Well, that's just common sense. Our first idea then is how hegemony uses common sense to maintain the status quo. But how does this relate to the arts? So... In that sense, there's a whole bunch of things that contribute to maintaining that common sense, one large piece of which is the arts. And so the arts recapitulate that common sense in many ways. And so the arts uh, institutionally are structured to privilege a few gifted, talented, genius experts uh, who are officially recognized as the producers of art, and then there's and then all the that's the legitimate art activity which deserves funding which deserves attention which gets marketed in our in our so-called market or our capitalist market and that the vast majority of people make art every day of their life in different ways from stuff like scrapbooking to telling stories to each other to singing and song circles and what's called community arts and and crafts and hobbies that's not art. That's crafts and hobbies. That's just common sense, right? And then there's a little bit of a boundary in there where you, you get what are called primit- primitivist artists, right? And a primitivist artist is somebody who is uh, not formally trained, but who dares to try and produce art that competes in the marketplace, or at least discursively, with professional art and so it's framed very cleverly as primitivist art and and we romanticize it and think it's cute you know so so there's that aspect that that art contributes to that whole hegemony of common sense if you will so let's sit with this idea for a minute the contribution of the arts to different kinds of common sense is a little mind-blowing because it can be very easy to think of the arts as something outside of hegemonic power structures Of course, and this is really obvious to anyone looking for arts funding, that's absolutely not the case. We talked to Deborah Barnt about the relationship between arts and the environment in the Faculty of Environmental Studies. 
we met with her downtown at Alternative Grounds, a cafe with roots in our master's program at FES. Uh, my name is Deborah Barnt, and I sometimes describe uh, myself as uh, engaging the tensions of artist, academic, and activist. In a sense, I, I came upon these three pieces of my identity when I was doing my doctoral work in Peru in the in the 70s, and I found myself really torn as I was trying to critically engage literacy programs uh, with, you know, with a questioning uh, perspective at the same time that challenged me in terms of what I was going to do with the knowledge, and I was being challenged by, by, by the people I was working with, with what good it was going to do them. Uh, and I was, as a photographer, constantly bringing... Um, photography and theater and song into the process so it was a way that I found people could uh, communicate express their histories and connect with each other and so I, I found myself torn between what I called the three corners of a triangle the poeta politica and pensadora which I translate into the artist activists and the academic and I see that really my life has been uh, living with uh, what might seem to be the tensions and contradictions between those different identities, but none of which I have been able to let go of because, actually, I think they need each other. Here's what Deb had to say about common sense and some of her students who have come to the realization that arts and environment can work together. Students come in either from in, you know, environmental studies or from fine arts, and uh, suddenly, you know, like the uh, fine arts students come and, and, and say, well, you mean I can actually combine, you know, my, my artistic passions with my social commitments? And I mean, it's just like a whole notion, new notion, you know, they've never considered. And on the other hand, environmental studies students will come and, you know, with, often with more of a, a sophisticated social analysis and some kind of commitment to social change. Um, but a bit anxious, you know, about art, right? Because art, in quotes, is seen uh, in very particular ways. I mean, the common sense notion of it is that it's only for professionals and experts and that uh, the rest of us really can just consume it quietly, you know? If art is to be of use to environmentalists, at least those in the academy, then a lot of work must be needed to deconstruct internal hegemonic approaches to the roles of arts in society. Part of that work, to re-examine common sense in the arts and in the environmental movement, is being done at our faculty through the Community Arts Practice Program. Deb explained the origins of this unique educational initiative to us. She and many others began drawing together from both the Fine Arts Department and Environmental Studies Department around 2000 to examine what collaborations might be possible. There was a trend in Toronto and elsewhere in the public sphere generally towards these kinds of affinities and alliances. At one point, the dean of our faculty had a daughter in York's Fine Arts program, and the dean of Fine Arts had a daughter in our program. It seemed like the time was ripe. By 2005, we had the certificate approved and we began the first courses. Students take a community-based fine arts class, a popular education class, and a class in critical social analysis and other core courses. Culminating in a fourth year placement, which for us is kind of the capstone where they're um, placed with a community organization or a community arts project, um, being mentored by a community artist for the fall and winter terms of the fourth year and have really a, an immersion in the practice, but have also weekly sessions with other 
CAP students to be able to reflect on that work. The program is open to students who don't have degrees and to artists who wish to expand their theoretical skills. Deb feels these artists in particular have brought so much and they've also found that it's a space that they can reflect on their work and uh, think about it more critically and realize that they're part of something larger and you know, find a language for what they've been doing and kind of rethink their practice. Within this program, students use specific resources to reimagine their creative capacities and reframe common sense and the mental blocks they may have concerning the arts. We asked Deb to comment on the program's pedagogy. I used that book by Clark Mackey, a new book called A Random Acts of Culture, Reclaiming Art and Community in the 21st Century. And what was useful about that was that it really kind of went to the roots of how of how of the the emergence of con, of a consumer culture and mentality vis-a-vis all forms of expression and how um, the historical shaping of the spectator um, and and I think for students he talks about vernacular culture and for students it was like an aha to sort of recognize also where all these um, blocks come from because part of what we try to challenge is you know, what people have learned through schooling and through media, et cetera, is that I can't sing, I can't draw, I can't, act, you know. And so it's really challenge, trying to understand, you know, how we come to that place and then how we, we challenge that um, without denying the role of particular talents and certainly, you know, artists who are able to either represent communities because they are part of them and resonate so deeply and feel, you know, that people feel that they can be represented, or, you know, artists that can provoke and stimulate those kinds of dialogues that get people thinking critically or seeing themselves in other ways. I think in many ways the epistemological underpinnings of at least my practice have been informed by a critical conversation between uh, I would say, first of all, some critical social theorists like Gramsci and uh, critical pedagogical theorists like Paulo Freire, and on the other hand, the kinds of questions that indigenous uh, scholars and ind- indigenous practices would make to those pra- those those uh, practices, which are in many ways still very Eurocentric, and um, as well as the challenges that feminists and uh, environmentalists and anti-racists, etc., you know, bring. So we should have an idea of what Chris Kavanaugh meant in his first framing of hegemony. Common sense is a very powerful thing. We can see this in the ways that the arts are professionalized, but also in the way that we're told, as Deb said, well, you can't sing or you can't paint. Those activities are for the real artists. Chris provided a second framing of hegemony for The other way to look at hegemony is that it's a way to organize society so that it seems natural that the vast majority of us, majority of us society, work for the benefit of, for the differential benefit of a few. And so it seems natural that you have a huge middle class, a large poor class, and a very small, wealthy, rich, or obscenely rich class. And that 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 the middle class and the working class, as disorganized as that might be, should work to produce wealth that is appropriated and and, and ex, that is exploited, appropriated and redistributed to a small minority, is another aspect of hegemony. That seem that naturalness, and so the arts again recapitulate that in that we structure our arts hierarchically 
and and create a meritocracy in our arts as well that it is about the product and it is about the aesthetics and the execution of that product that needs to meet certain criteria of beauty um you know acuity you know transparency and so on and and so that corresponds nicely with a hierarchical society in which a few benefit at the expense of the many and again all of the stuff that people do on a day-to-day basis has disappeared you know in that notion of art so we have high art and low art in all of that this second argument feels really orwellian i mean intuitively my common sense tells me that the best arts rise to the top even though i know as a professional gigging musician that this is not the case at all and yet I still retain this prejudice. We decided to talk to Heather McLean to find out just how deep the rabbit hole goes, how controlled art production is, who gets the funding, and for whom the work is created to consume. Her specific interest is in Toronto. Here's Heather. Hi, I'm Heather McLean, and I'm just um, trying to finish my PhD right now in environmental studies at York. And I write about arts and culture and the political economy of arts funding and arts and culture planning in Toronto right now. The City of Toronto has something called their Culture Plan for the Creative City. It's the guiding document for um, arts and culture planning in Toronto. And in 2003, they developed this plan, and it took them a few years to develop it. With um, very, You have very small pockets, small areas for community consultation. They have a lot of private sector experts and think tank experts and people that write about arts and creativity develop the plan. And then you have a few opportunities for people who work in the arts to actually contribute. Anyways, I went to one of those meetings. They're, they're developing a new plan in 2011. And... Um, they asked people from the arts to come and, and contribute. And uh, what I found interesting was both the 2003 plan and the, the plan they're developing now, the language they use um, about, sorry, the, 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 the way the policy is written, all of the language talks about arts and culture are important for making Toronto competitive. Arts and culture make us a prosperous, competitive city. We're the most culturally, uh, like we're culture capital of the world. And they're telling a group of people, a lot of youth and youth of color from like Scarborough and Etobicoke, people that do really neat urban arts work. They're telling this room full of youth, um, because of you, you make Toronto competitive and we need you to make this, uh, the art scene cool and we have to compete with all these countries. So there's a real language of competition and it's, uh, that's the kind of, um, with my work, I look at these urban, these think tanks that are behind that kind of language, the Martin Prosperity Institute and the University of Toronto. And there's these kind of business think tanks that what they write is that a creative creativity in the arts are drivers of the the new, the so-called new economy. And so there's just a lot of pressure to, to compete with culture, but then we're not investing in operating funding for arts organizations. Artist-run center workers don't have any benefits. People are supposed to go to art school and accrue a lot of debt, and then they come out and they can't, it's, they're supposed to work as interns for free. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of an economy based on free work and free labor and really precarious work and women and artists of color tend to make less money in the industry. And 
So anyways, that's the kind of stuff I follow. It's just why these urban policymakers like to kind of pimp out artists and then what the real real everyday reality is for arts workers. So who are these people really? The ones controlling the big art scene, the puppeteers, so to speak. You have these these uh, boosters, these urban boosters, and they're very celebratory about marketing Toronto. And they they're behind they own condo they they're behind the development industry and real estate industry. So they're condo owner like they own condo companies. They own um, they're big real estate gurus. They're big. Uh, they work in media. Um, they tend to be on the boards of the AGO and the ROM, and they're all very connected. And they. It seems like this; these dynamics have happened before, but they're really there's a real pressure more than ever, especially now. This idea of the creative city, this new policy trend that started around 2002, it's becoming creativity has now become this buzzword used in all kinds of planning documents, and it's become students use it all the time. Um, yeah, well, creative people, creative city, they've, they've it's it's become kind of a policy norm. This idea of the creative collaborative city, like it's a type of it's a type of capital accumulation and it's a type of making events for red carpet openings for rich people. The think tanks behind the work I'm critiquing, um, the one main one is at the university of Toronto and you have, um, you have professors working with the private sector. There, there's collaborative partnerships and with some members of nonprofits and NGOs, that kind of work, but mainly with the private sector. And they come up and they they create policies. Like the Martin Prosperity Institute has written policy for the provincial level, and they've written um, policy for the city of Toronto. They also write academic journals, and they're professors. So like they, they teach courses, but they work with the private sector so like the what's th- that in itself there's so much to write about just the culture of universities are becoming more and more cash strapped but you have these institutions that are able to work with these private get the private sector funding mm-hmm. so what exactly like what how is the research compromised or you know what are the what kind of political issues are happening with with that research if it's so tied in with the private sector, right? So here you also have a group of people that are setting the policy discourse for municipal, provincial, federal policy that's becoming normalized on all these different scales, and you have these groups of people that are writing it, and then they can refer back to their writing, but they're very very pro market. They're pretty anti union. The, the founders of Luminato also want to make these six figure. Um, art awards for just a few top top artists and now they're pushing the canada council the canada council is like keeps cutting funding and they're actually considering it now they're going to have these mega awards so it'll be like the nobel prize of art and they want them adjudicated through illuminato so they're like they have serious impact on culture policy these people and they love the idea of finding the next yo-yo ma or the next feist but they don't like they're obsessed with that the top but it's like all of the yeah, the everyday, the the everyday work and practicing and, and just surviving and getting by and, and trying to get you know, it, it, all of that stuff is ignored in these models. The big festivals, the big star architecture redesign, they're connected. Like the 
Luminato is supposed to be a festival of the urban renaissance, and it's celebrating all of the redesigned buildings, as well as bringing in artists to celebrate the whole city. That was the rationale of the event. The same year they're firing off staff at the AGO, and small theaters are closing, and there's just, it's just this, too, yeah, it's just kind of the neoliberal city kind of in the arts. Another good analogy or example of that is the, the AGO, they had all that, uh, they get a lot of capital funding. They get these big grants from the federal and provincial government and it gets partnered with private sector and philanthropist donors. And so they spent that money on the Frank Gehry redesign. And then a year late, like they fired off, they had um, unionized workers through OPSU, Ontario Public Sector Employees Union. Um, they've just been firing off and, and cutting union jobs. And now most of the gallery staff now are, they're all part-time jobs. So you have, again, we're not, there's all this emphasis on the main, the, the big design and the big name and the marketing. And then you have very wealthy people on the board, but the, the, they're unionized, they're good jobs. They're, and they're all part-time now. And they're all, they're, they keep, well, not all, but the most, they keep being cut back and cut back and back, but you have these high-paid administrators. And so it's, it's just, that's what's happening. Like, that's the creative city right now. It's, it, and it's been, ha it's been unraveling. There's a restructuring that goes with that kind of big event. So, so anyways, that's two different things, but the big festival, the big architectural design, mm -hmm. and then the labor, like they're, they're, they're split. Like they're, it's, it's just really unhealthy. It's a city cutting out work, like and 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 labor, and that. Why does that have to be separated from arts and culture? Like that's what's. That's I find that really interesting. In this sense, hegemony, the naturalization of power structures, is pretty raw and clear through Heather's research. Let's bring Chris's third framing of hegemony into the discussion. Finally, you have another way to look at hegemony is the way that um, it's a it's the way to organize uh, consent in society. And by consent, again, it takes us back to common sense. And so, hegemony is a process by which consent to the to what I've already described. You know, the the hierarchy of our society. Consent is won by a combination of persuasion and coercion. And so we are persuaded every day that this is the normal way society should be should be run. And there is always somewhere there in the background the threat of coercion if we don't go along with that. Mm -hmm. And so if you literally if you break the law, of course, you are then, you know, caught, penalized, what have you. So that's an obvious use of coercion. But then there are much more subtle, less obvious forms of coercion that might be exercised in a mixed neighborhood where you have poor kids and wealthy kids going to the same school. Mm. And the poor kids are held to a standard of cleanliness and hygiene and dress that is extremely hard for the poor to maintain, mm. much easier for the wealthy to maintain. And so, and the poor know, you know, people who are poor know how important the judgment of those who have more power than them is. And so you get that, that judgment within that, that, that small example of, of dress, body size, you know, body image, 
You know, we assert fierce judgments in our society to regulate what is normal in terms of dress and body size and health and all of that. And that's a form of hegemonic coercion that is helping, that is, that is forcing us to stay in line. But nobody has to beat anybody else up because of that. The, we, we know that the threat of judgment is there. So merely the threat of judgment is enough to keep us mostly within the boundaries of persuasion, which the advertising industry is so good at doing. So that's an, uh, yet another way to look at hegemony as well. What does this coercion look like in the arts? How do these ideas move well beyond common sense ideas of artistry? We'd like to warn our audience at this point that some language in the following is explicit. You should probably cover any young ears for a moment. Toronto has a, a long history of kind of, you have a downtown kind of progressive core, but they tend to be kind of white and middle class who like to consume the arts and engage in arts and culture. And I think a lot of city plans and have tried to encourage these genteel kind of live work spaces and walkable neighborhoods. And like a lot of the stuff is really, I find it really appealing for quality of life, but the problem is it is quite racialized and, and it's, it's about class. You want to have kind of these cool, these not cool, but um, interesting livable neighborhoods and the arts are part of cultivating that. So you attract property uh, developers and you attract investment and businesses and business improvement area groups get involved with this kind of thing, trying to groom neighborhoods and make them safe. And now you have culture as one of those tools. So for example, a few years ago, Nuit Blanche at Bloor and Lansdowne, a local community arts group helped work with some of the galleries there to stage their own mini Nuit Blanche in the area. But they were involved with a business improvement association for the area, trying to clean up the area. So a lot of the rhetoric was the guy magazine had an article about their project. And uh, it said the woman who, who, who was the spearhead of the project, the main leader, she said, um, through community arts, so she said, this area, a lot of people were afraid to come here before because there are a lot of, uh, she said, um, I don't think she used the word crack whore, but it was someone else used that word in the article. But there's a lot of people who do crack here. There's a lot of street walkers, prostitutes. And now through art, we're helping it make it livable and we're shining a light. She said, we're shining a light on the neighborhood and bringing light to the neighborhood. So things like you have arts, they end up being mobilized to become this vehicle for kind of making a safe, sanitized space. It's like a soft type of control and, and management of neighborhoods. And I think, so anyway, so I think we have a history in Toronto of these kind of politics playing out for sure. Like through the, the sixties and seventies of gentrification of cabbage town and the annex. And, but I, I, over the, from what I'm tracing over the, since especially the mid nineties, but quite recently arts are definitely being um, conflated with urban revitalization and cleaning up neighborhoods and making areas competitive and making areas cool, making areas marketable. So it's a way of gentrifying a neighborhood. And and then other theorists look at, um, it's a colonial strategy saying you're going to make an area safe, make, bring in light to the area. Like what, what about the people living there? Don't they have vital lives? Why, do, why are you just, how can you, like the language of sanitizing a neighborhood with culture and so... At this point, Heather began combining all three of the hegemonic frameworks we've laid out so far. 
1. Art, and particularly culture, as common sense. 2. Art as available for consumption only by the wealthy, thereby making power seem natural. And 3. Art as contributing to control through consent and coercion. A lot of Torontonians love the work of Jane Jacobs, and like she talks about eyes on the street and these interactive spaces, but then it's hard to be critical of someone like Jane Jacobs because she's like, it seems like such radical work. Are you familiar? Okay, she um, she was from New York, and she moved here. Um, she, she she was really involved with, um, she, she wrote this book, that, what is it, The Death... The Life and Death of Great American Cities. At the time, um, planners were ripping down neighborhoods and putting in highways and creating, you know, you have to sprawl and then you drive your car into the downtown corridor or whatever, your office, and then leave the city. So she was very much saying cities are really important and we need to have really jumbled spaces where you can go out and take part in the streets. Of it. Anyway, she moved to Toronto and she's like always been a really big figurehead of kind of progressive Toronto politicians and and activists as she really celebrates diversity and mix and living you know being out in the street the thing is if you look at her writing too it's kind of it's it's highly it's highly loaded because she'll say things like ethnic communities are really great because you have these restaurants and it's these really interesting people make a good mix and it's it's kind of like this weird way of consuming culture without really having to deal with inequality or like that classic wacky neighborhood. Classic exotification. Yeah, it's exotification and, and not confronting cities are places full of really difficult things we have to challenge. They're not supposed to be about just kind of cruising around and seeing the the, the, the street ballet, she calls it. And so it's just, it's that kind of thinking it definitely predominates in Toronto. So you have certain networks that are able to access funding to do these projects and then other networks that keep getting ignored and they tend to the way like you're saying about Afrofest now not losing its funding or there's a lot of groups in the city that make the city vibrant and they they get ignored and and while the downtown core is becoming increasingly expensive so the amount of energy these kind of festivals the attention they get and people worry that they're a way of the city having to like the state or the city having to back away from really investing in the arts because it's such a mega um, mm. private public partnership. So it's a way of really celebrating the city without really having to invest year round. So you have an event where my, this one guy I interviewed said, you just kind of carpet bomb the city with arts and make this huge impression. And it looks like the arts are well-funded when in fact they're not. And so, but, but yeah, the crowds and everything, I, I think it's, it's kind of, I just think it's kind of hilarious. I don't research Nui Blanche so much, but I really, I wrote a lot about Luminato and it was the same kind of this mega 10 day festival that came out of nowhere. Um, and again, it's these big, um, business think tank people. They, they say like David Pico, the founder, he's like, he, he's passed away since, but he, he was just like, he was like considered the shadow mayor and. He was saying, we have to make Toronto the best. We have to attract the best. We're going to do it with this festival. And they got all this funding. And But when what they did was they piloted in international artists from around the world. And they didn't really bother asking any artists here to take part or any arts organizations. The first year was really shocking. Like a lot of artists were really angry. And, they, and they'd go to local arts organizations and artist-run centers and grassroots theaters and say, hey, what's what are the what's cool what's going on in the city that's cool what's up and coming who are the cool people because we're going to talk to them 
And literally, like the guy, one of the people I interviewed said, it's like having someone say, you know that thing you've been trying to do for 20 years? Well, we have all the money and we're going to do it and we want names. So give them to us. And they didn't even give them money or like support. Or it was, The first year was really, really parasitic. The same year Luminato opened four independent theaters closed. They couldn't keep up operating funding and they couldn't afford the rents in downtown Toronto. We spoke to another PhD student at FES, Edie Steiner, the individual who has been allowing us to use her fantastic photos. And Edie also reported similar concerns about the large arts festivals across Toronto. Here's Edie. My name's Edie Steiner. I am a media artist, I guess. I work in film and photography. Um, I'm currently working on a completing a doctorate in uh, cultural environmental studies at York University. Um, I continue to exhibit photography and um, use film and photography as part of my research process. A theater with closed doors and a $50 ticket is going to ne- necessarily exclude a lot of people who might want to see that. Um, so one thing I've noticed, particularly at the film festival, for instance, when you have a screening of experimental film, um, that, that it's always sold out. But yet those same films will play at smaller venues all year round, and the public won't go. Only the kind of uh, aficionados or the, or the other artists or, or that community who's involved with you know alternative filmmaking practices in some way, they'll be all there. But the general public, other than friends, usually won't. So in a way, it's kind of bracketing that art within a particular context, that it has this exclusivity within a larger festival. But it's not, um, for some reason, it's not getting to the sort of grassroots level, or it's kind of appropriating it for that particular frame, Mm -hmm. and then putting it back out to um, struggle with its, you know, ongoing smaller audiences and difficulties in funding alternative spaces and so on. But if there are all these hegemonic forces controlling how we experience art, what role do artists play in this and how should they react? Edie suggested that what artists should do is produce work that should be a form of resistance against dominant cultures in some way or an exploration of experience. Um, for me, you know, m- the, the moment of making the artwork is always a phenomenological practice of being with, you know, the visible in that moment. But how does Edie operationalize 
put these theoretical ideas about art into practice through her work. Well, okay, I like um, this old sort of saying that is oft quoted by Marshall McLuhan that art is a distant early warning system, a kind of dew line, um, that's pretty well um, that the art is telling the culture where it's going to go next. So art is kind of um, forecasting what's happening in the culture. Oh. And um, so I find that interesting that, you know, art should be a form of resistance. Art is political. Art is not decorative um, or merely that. I guess for some people, they'll buy the most political piece of art and use it as a way of decorating their abode. But that's not usually the artist's intention. Um, I think a lot of um, relating it back to the environment or environmental art or eco art, I think a lot of contemporary art is concerned with mourning the degraded and devastated world, natural world environment. Um, so in a way that becomes a practice of culture. Um, and um, I think that's interesting, but I don't think that, I don't think that's the only, a way to approach art now. Um, it's more than a, a way of documenting. It's you know also a way of expressing more subtle forms of perception. Edie offered us some further ideas about environment and art, all of which relate in many ways to our first two episodes, which focused on melancholy and mourning. She provided examples of some of the ways to subvert common sense ideas about nature and art. Uh, personally, I, uh, though, have always been um, fascinated by the idea of the ruin, and I've tried to write about it, and, um, you know, some people have talked... I know Northrop Fry has written um, a piece called Canada, Land of Ruins, and um, I believe Margaret Atwood has commented on this as well, the idea, and I think a lot of artists are preoccupied with sort of material vestiges of, you know, what's what we've produced in this culture. Um, and I particularly like um, um, the art um, theoretician Brian Dillon says that the ruin is a kind of accommodation between nature and culture and that in the end nature will win out. Um, and we it's kind of a recurring image that's been with us, say, since um, the romantic painters Thomas Cole's uh, paintings of empire where... Um, he goes through these four stages, from the pastoral to the kind of heightened um, cosmopolitan to eventually the ruination of the culture, and then things return to a kind of natural state, but the ruins are still visible in the landscape, and um, I think this has been part of what's been, what I've been thinking about recently. Mm. On a lot of your, your photographs uh, f feature ruin, right? Like, I mean, we're... I'm, as you're talking, I'm sort of looking at this this photograph right above your head that's got the ruin of a of a car. Um, and, and I mean, you've you've visited. Can you, maybe can you tell us a little bit about how ruins have been, how you've focused on them in your own work? Yeah, I think um, um, I don't. I'm not sure how I arrived at that point exactly, but it was a long time ago, and I believe your podcast used one of my early photographs from the '80s of. Um, a tree in it was in uh, in the Lower East Side in New York, and um, 
in this particularly dilapidated neighborhood and there was this beautiful willow tree just struggling to emerge I believe it was late March and again it's got you know that kind of nature will still appear even in these ruined places and I I I guess the idea of juxtaposition is kind of central to that visual practice that I've struggled with um, that somehow there's meaning resonant meaning in the objects that have been uh, discarded that it once had a different value. Um, um, this kind of, uh, Rebecca Solnit actually says that um, that ruins are kind of treasures uh, left in the landscape and um, that they should be honored in some way. Or at least acknowledged. Yeah. So you were, you were saying before about um, about just hegemony and and these different ways of understanding the difference between eco art and really community practices, and that that's something that I struggle as a performing artist to understand the difference between because to me it's all community art. Yeah, and I think all art is political, um, or should be maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, so. If we make an object um, that's, you know, marketable, um, how does that detract from the politics of the art? Um, So you're always asking, who's it for? Um, Quite often, art that ends up in galleries is for a different audience than, say, art that's used as a way of giving voice to the voiceless or to those, and, you know, who decides who's voiceless. Um, But I think art that's exhibited can still serve a a similar function in that it can inform um, the problem is getting people to galleries or um, getting them to spaces where um, where they will read art much as we read texts Um, so I guess the internet has sort of bridged that gap a little bit um, made artist websites available Mm -hmm. Um, particularly um, one artist that's I think heavily cited now in eco-art is Chris Jordan, who, um, whose works are very complex. Um, but even if you look at them on the website, the message there, the, the images are, are statistically grounded in you know, a consumer waste, and he's making a very political statement about how much we dispose of in this culture. And then he's got other images that are more recordings of environmental destruction, uh, species lost, uh, that kind of thing. Um, and I guess, you know, with all this focus of um, degraded environments, it's kind of brought us full circle back to ideas of the sublime, and it's become this idea of the industrial or post-industrial sublime. Um, and the, the sublime was always something that provoked anxiety and and yet, at the same time, a certain kind of reverence for a construction that was so large um, and that one was kind of humbled you know, by this um, idea of immensity and abstraction that the mind is struggling to grasp and then removing itself as well to a safe distance from that object. You know, there's lots of other artists working with um, ideas of, you know... Um, difference and 
um, social justice and making images that represent those um, ideas. So I think, you know, art is a text that can be read as, as any literary text can be read, and it has a place. It's a different um, form of using sort of visual context, if we're talking visual art, but, you know, we can also construct music and theater around those same ideas and concerns. Edie's decision to join FES was an interesting example of how an environmental art piece can come about. She was... Thinking of making um, a a short film about um, this mining town where I, I grew up, and uh, called Manitowage in northwestern Ontario. And the town was coming up to its 50th anniversary in 2004. And, um, and I thought it was kind of ironic that there was all these massive celebrations being planned and people coming back who'd lived there a long time ago, gone to high school there and so forth. And, um, and yet the town itself was dying and um, people were leaving and... Um, so the the community was kind of in this um, this space of um, degrading and yet still trying to keep a certain energy going and um, so and so I thought um, the first thing I sh- I wanted to do was interview some of the elders of the town, gather their oral histories, and then kind of see what evolved. Um, and I guess I was looking for a critique of the mining company because I was still, on a personal level, angry about what happened to my mother, who um, had been living in a company-owned home when my father abruptly died um, and of mining-related illnesses, and this was denied by the company at the time, that his death had anything to do with his steady inhalations of, of silica dust. And um, he also had lung cancer, um, And they attributed the lung cancer to the fact that he had smoked and not to silica dust inhalation, which then this was in the in the 70s. And um, when he died, still relatively young and 20 years later, the scientific research supported the fact that silica dust causes lung cancer. Mm -hmm. But that was 20 years after my father died. So um, so that's sort of the nutshell of the story but I started off I guess wanting to find out you know what were the controversies what did people really going through in these days and everyone um, I interviewed was very friendly towards the mining company and I um, and felt that you know things weren't so bad and they'd done all right living in this town other than my mother who sort of bluntly told me the story about how she'd been screwed by the mining company and she was um and I wondered why um and how that happened and she had um because she'd been living in a company house had to um vacate that house at the time of my father's death um because she couldn't afford to buy it and they hadn't bought it because they never planned to stay because um my dad didn't want to stay in you know in another mining town uh, miners are often very transient workers um, so here she was, homeless, um, and being told to get out. And I, I wondered, where's you know, where's this trail of correspondence? Mm-hmm. So um, um, I eventually, I, I didn't know what to do with the interviews, and I just kept recording them. And finally, I decided that my mother's story was the one that had to get told. Mm-hmm. And um, I was already doing that, and then I carried it into my research. Then it became 
another form of work. It became uh, research, and the the video recording was kind of for a while secondary to that. And I discovered, you know, this new science, and I was able to access the paperwork and and challenge it, and and um, eventually uh, get a reconsideration of my father's uh, claim um, on behalf of my mother, who also had issues of language. Um, she was an immigrant. She was not highly educated. She had always been working class. And so that whole power dynamic of, um, you know, the worker versus the company and the company doctors and the northern Ontario doctors versus the the uh, Toronto doctors were all different power structures that became more and more apparent to me and that were part of this narrative that I chose to explore. Um, and then eventually I finished it as a as a short film and... And it went around to some, you know, number of festivals, and particularly environmental festivals. Edie's work today examines the interconnectivity between these small communities along the shores of Lake Superior, as well as the place of resource extraction in their realities. Next, we asked Edie to talk about why art struggle for acceptance in academia. I think many people still view art as non-essential to culture. Um, that it's, you know, and I think that's our dominant culture that does that. That. Um, that art is, you know, hence, I mean, look at the city um, and trying to keep funding going for artists and not just the city, but on, you know, the arts councils are always being, you know, cut back. And um, there's this critique if the art is too radical that people shouldn't be funded and, you know, those kinds of problems. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's always difficult, often difficult. And yet people do recognize that art is... is um, is key to a, a healthy culture, the arts in general, mm-hmm. some kind of access, and that art can be participatory. Um, you know, I think that it doesn't need to be exclusive, doesn't need to be about um, being vir- uh, sort of a virtuoso in your particular medium. Um, you know, there's a huge scope of where art, where we can all as a culture participate in some way. Um, but I still think there's a place for art as, you know, a very, um, sort of consistent practice, um, that a person might take on as sort of their life's work, same as authorship, um, that, you know, um, that there's a way of, um, there is a separation, I guess, between, um, you know, a, a, commi- a commitment, an ongoing commitment to a particular medium and a particular practice is different than sort of dabbling in it occasionally, having fun with it. But one should still be able to do that. Chris also spoke about the manner in which arts are understood as having a use in only certain places. You know, largely, <clears throat> you know, people don't think that when you're having a debate on a piece of policy, in the way, say, the faculty here works, or in terms of what the protest is that we're organizing, that there's room or time for somebody's contribution to be a poem. So we expect somebody to get to the point. You know, we're having a debate of where the demo is going to go. And somebody stands up and goes, well, I I have something to say about this, but I'm going to say it with a poem by... Edna St. Vincent Millay. I don't know. Like, right? No, that's not cool. You know, it will, I've tried, in fact, in meetings, 
modestly, hardly a scientific sampling, but I've tried every now and again to share the beauty of language and words, whether a quote or a poem, because I think it carries energy and inspiration that's important to be part of the debates that we're engaged in. And nine times out of ten, if not more, you know, people are impatient about it, you know, people are, are amusedly tolerant of it, and in the end it's like, oh, Chris, you're the artistic one. And so I'm, again, carefully framed as this in a positive sense, but then also excluded. And that's another little hegemonic trick as well. So that's what I think I'm up against, you know, with the with what I just said as my failure and to, to bring that. And I will keep on doing that no matter what. That's something I think Diane and I worked on as well, you know, murals and stuff. And some of the murals are around the faculty mm-hmm. that, you know, that Diane produced and her art is in the boardroom here and so on. And yet people also simultaneously recognize the power of art for change. Perhaps within academia, there are historical trends preferencing the analysis of art, but not the integration of it into pedagogical practice. Still, within the environmental movement, art matters. Protest is, is an art and not just as a metaphor. there is an art to protest there is an art to democracy and when we're using that as more than simply a convenient metaphor because it sounds cool what it means is that there is beauty involved in our work and so and 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 there are many places that that is uh, is applicable and so most obviously perhaps in the posters and pamphlets and books that we do but but also in the designs of processes that we do together that they can be beautiful processes. That in, in, and, and that doesn't mean pretty. I mean, by beautiful, I'm, I'm evoking the complex set of things that contribute to an aesthetic success, whether it's a sculpture, a painting, a song, or a, comp- a symphony, what have you. So, so for me, as, a, as an artist, an activist, an educator, the, the, I'm always producing what I hope are beautiful things. And that beauty, that what I'm referring to, perhaps almost in a shorthand by beauty, is also referring to, th- to energies that are timeless, that connect us across generations and cultures as well. And that's what art can do that science cannot, to put those two in contrast, if you will. How else does art work in contrast to science? Art is a trickster practice as well. And art implicitly carries with it the message that we can make the world, that we can make meaning. And education for me, if it's not simply training, which unfortunately too much education is, education is developing the capacity, sharing the capacity amongst ourselves across generations to make meaning out of the world, and hopefully transformative meaning, meaning that makes a better world, meaning that is compassionate, kind, resistant to oppression, meaning that is emancipatory. That's what it's all about. And science, I don't think, can do that. For science to do that, again, to to pick one way to contrast art, for science to do that, which I think it can, but not within its own rubrics of science, science to be able to do that needs to tell its own stories. And so it's only when the knowledge that we gain through scientific exploration has been 
been converted into a narrative that it can then move in the world. And once again, there's the possibility when people understand it's a narrative to understand that it could be told differently. And if it can be told differently, then people are more resistant to being manipulated by expert authoritarian knowledge. We want peace and we want it now. We want peace and we want it now. We want peace and we want it now. Chris further told us about the power of narrative and story in his life and pedagogical practice. And when I tell stories, people are moved by them, and they are astonished by them. And I think my guess is that people, even while they're impressed by me, right, and that's okay, like, I don't mind that. And people say, thank you, you're a good storyteller, I appreciate it, say thank you. But I think what is lasting in terms of what they take away is not me, but is the power of narrative and story, about which I am mostly just reminding them, exists. And when I do that, I find people blossom, and they are inspired, and they take away energy. And it, it achieves, pedagogically, something that is very hard to achieve, and that is to make people curious. It makes people curious, it makes them want more. And I think in a lot of the education work we do, we're foolish to think that we can stand up in front of a group of people and teach them facts. We, we can't even teach them how to think, not by standing up in front of them. But what we can do by standing up in front of each other is inspire each other. We can make each other curious. We can trouble the way that we each see the world and trouble, it, that, trouble that in such a way not to create anxiety, but to create curiosity. It's like, oh, that, so the world doesn't work the way I thought it did. So how does it work? And when we can get people to that place of asking a question, then we've begun, then we, for them, they have begun the process of teaching themselves. You know? So I think storytelling and the performing that I do uh, does that. How does this work in the classroom? Uh, it's characteristic of me to mock myself and to mock the privileges I have and to mock the, 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 the representative power of what it means to be white and male and older now, I'm 50 plus. And so by mocking my own authority that I know people are granting me even though I may not have earned it, I'm doing another thing as well, in, which is what art does as well. It undermines some of those hegemonic pieces of common sense. I say a swear word in a lecture, and people are like, oh my god, the professor just said a swear word. Now they have to fit me in with all of the other professors that don't use swear words. And either they will conclude that I am uh, an outsider and, and, and weird, or they will think more critically about their own common sense notions of what the proper disposition of a professor is. And hopefully over time, with me, facilitating or leading a class or a group, people will realize that I pay more attention, I listen more, I feel respected by this guy who tells stories and cusses and makes fun of himself than I do from the guy over there, or the woman, who speaks so authoritatively about this, that, or the other thing, 
but doesn't do any of those things, is well-behaved. Putting this focus on storytelling into practice right now, what other inspiring narratives did our contributors have? Edie was profoundly impacted by a program not unlike our community arts practice program in her youth. Yeah, I studied at Ryerson um, in the 70s, and I was in this really experimental program. I was really lucky to come because they had just um, come in at that time because they had just changed. Um, it had been very kind of rigid and technical, and it used to be called Ryerson Polytechnical Institute. And um, but a, a, but a group of um, people got together and decided to radicalize the program and make it. They sort of wanted to base it on some of the Bauhaus principles that everything had to be kind of integrated, holistic, and that um, experimental, um, independent. That you could have, do a lot of independent study and practice. Um, and I came in at that time. Um, and um, and that was very oriented towards the artist as sort of individual practitioner, not fitting into a commercial mode. Although some they still had commercial um, courses for people who wanted them. But all the I did an independent study almost the whole time after first year and um, worked on my personal projects. And I think that set me up for being self-directed always, you know, um, in terms of what I wanted to produce, and as it being an ongoing kind of cultural producer, that that would be, you know, all I ever really wanted to do, um, and I kind of um, got into photographing the punk scene and the music scene of that era um, because, um, oh, I was young, and it was the first music that really spoke to me, um, other than folk music. Um, there was this whole glam thing that happened, and I wasn't really that interested in a lot of that. I was more interested in, you know, the the bands that came out with the new wave and punk era, because I thought their 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 music was a lot more intelligent, and it was, you know, music of resistance, and it was energetic. Heather finds her work presents a real struggle. Some of the work with Toronto Free, we we did. Um, we organized a panel a couple of years ago about the idea of the creative city, and we were very critical of mainstream creative city policies. And it was like, I was a, a group of us wrote, we created a blog, like tracking this neoliberal way of seeing art, this corporate way of seeing art. And we were very critical. And some of these people are big name profs at the University of Toronto. And we were, and none of, we tried to not have our names associated with it, but a universe or a Toronto Star wrote an article and they put my name on it. So, which is fine, but again, it's kind of freaky critiquing professors and... Ugh. But I think it's really interesting and important to try to connect this work with what's happening around you. And I think it's always going to be imperfect and always partial and someone will always critique it and always say you're doing it the wrong way. And um, But I think it's really important to get right into the mud of things and to try to to work with those contradictions and reflect on them. I think that being separate and studying everything from a, this theoretical lens and you're off with your buddies researching and writing and you're kind of you're kind of separate, I find that that makes me really uncomfortable. So I'm trying to be in the contradictions and just and sit with them, however anxious they make me. Art appears to have to struggle against hegemony in all places, even within institutions built for them even when Deb brings her community arts practice class into places on our own campus. Even though we had the support of the um, community relations staff person at the AGYU, 
there was a lot of tension around, you know, what the gallery rules are and what the space is for. And, and, and that was a really important process, like, for our students to go through. Now, I mean, galleries in many cases are opening, you know, to more diverse populations and alternative practices. But this was, you know, a chance for them to experience that tension and to actually feel it and have to negotiate some of those differences. The degree to which the arts you know, are appropriated by the advertising industry and images taken up and songs that 20 years ago or 30 years ago were really dissident and are now, you know, jingles for cars, you know, is all part of that hegemonic machinery that, that as, as in one of my favorite quotes says, eats resistance for breakfast. You know, resist it if you want. Who, who you said know. that? It's from a quote by Peter Schumann, the director of Bread and Puppet. It's a longish quote about um, oppression and resistance, and it ends with the line, because it eats resistance for breakfast, when he's referring to uh, uh, our dominant society. And so, for instance, with the Occupy Wall Street going on right now, You've probably heard, as most of us have, over and over again from wealthy and powerful pundits and others, you know, well, it's really great that they protest, and protesting is really great, and, you know, and they really have some good points there, but, but you know, it, there's a place and time for that. And so that's a neat little hegemonic dance, you know, that's affirming the democratic nature of protest, but also drawing a line saying, but they're going too far. And don't they realize that in a democratic society, there are all these other ways to do things so that they should get out and vote. And so, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a hegemonic dance, you know, to affirm the legitimacy, which they have to do because there are, as has been reported, 1,400 cities in which this is happening. So you can't just say to hell with them, they're meaningless. You have, you, you can't just say, you don't want to position yourself simply against them if you're the powerful because you risk being delegitimized yourself as a critic. So agree with some of it. Say, look, they've got a point, you know, and then you incorporate their resistance as part of the success of democracy. See, democracy is great because even you have a right to protest. But there are limits. That is a hegemonic piece of machinery. This co-opting of critique this sanitizing happens everywhere. It will impact your art. It will shape your career. I would love to write a comedy piece about being in that think tank because there was so much money. Like, we had to do something called, it was all business school stuff. It was so new economy. Like, you know, like people who work in an IT office and there's like a ping pong table and everyone's <laughs> really hot. And like, Rah. We had to do the very first thing we had to do was academic speed dating and we had to all get to know one another and everyone sat across around like I don't agree with what you do I don't like this gender race class and then the next person I don't like what you do and they're like oh that's interesting and like you had to like go around introducing yourself and I was critiquing everything and everyone's like great like no one seemed to there was no friction it was all like yeah creativity and and there was wow. so much money and there was like really fancy wine like the fanciest meals I've ever seen oh it's a business school with lots of money and they had like artists all over the wall. And I recognized some of this one woman. I know her partner just, he worked at the, uh, this is not the Rosedale Library, which just was gentrified out of Kensington Market. And they, they, there they have this artist on the wall. And I know they're totally broke and they're losing work and stuff. Oh. But like they somehow have the local artists on their wall. It was like the weirdest space ever. Yeah. 
So like I've gone, I want to write a piece about that, but I haven't. But I was told by a professor, if you write that and put it in a journal, you will burn bridges. And I'm kind of like, there aren't any bridges to burn anyways. Why don't well set everything on fire? They're all in fake bridges anyways. Like I don't, what, oh, I'm not going to get a job at a think tank. Like shoot. And then, and then, but it, yeah, it probably is risky. Cause like a lot of more mainstream academics like this stuff too. So, so when you say it's confusing and that's where we're going to leave it folks. Coherence is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment and the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and send us feedback on the show. We'd like to thank Chris Cavanaugh, Heather McLean, Edie Steiner, and Deborah Barnt for speaking with us. Peace and justice is the way we want to go. No more war. In our next episode, we'll be exploring why literature is important for ecopolitics, using interviews and material collected at the Green Words, Green Worlds conference that took place last fall. Thanks to Craig Pedersen, Joel Kerr, Albert Chimeza, the New York Path to Peace, and Pants Productions for the music for this episode. This episode was produced by Andrew Mark and Amanda DiBattista, and the fantastic sound design was done by Andrew Nolan. For details about this episode, check out our show notes at niche-canada.org backslash coherence, and coherence is spelled C-O-H-E-A-R-E-N-C-E. There were people there, this one woman gave a talk about how comedy is good for the economy, and she follows, she had a funding from Austria, and she studies where comedians live, and where funny people live, and if you have more funny people, it's good for the economy. (laughs) That's fantastic. I was just... Like, everything was about economic drivers. My friend and I actually sent in a proposal. He wanted to do it, and I thought it was funny, and then I got freaked out and didn't want to do it. But it was called Ass Book, and we were going to have this public space where all these people could photocopy their bums, and then we'd hang them over this huge public square. So when you walked under it, you got, like, you had all these fluttering ass images on your forehead. So it was supposed to be this, like, way of connecting with through people, but, like, through pictures of their butts. And we wrote this really funny um, statement, and it was really like beautiful and bizarre. But we sent it, and uh, he's he's the guy that had the dome in Trinity Bellwoods, and so he's well known, has had funding, and anyways, it made its way in. The curator thought it was really stupid, but the committee loved it, and it got into the first round. And then we went and looked at photocopiers. There's this old one in the United Church. We found a Craigslist, but it didn't work. And I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to do this. Like people are gonna sit on that and like hurt their bum cheek and like and it was just gross and unsanitary and weird anyways um so we pulled it the thing is the curator was like well god thank god i hated that idea it was so weird and um the th- it made its way into nuit blanche though and before the nuit blanche this was a few years ago but like the week before that nuit blanche the um i magazine now magazine globe and mail everyone was saying it was one of the events to look for we even like it was getting all this coverage and our names was like ass book with heather mclean and michael bartosik and i'm not an artist i was like oh my god so my friends and people up at york and professors were like we saw your name on now with something called ass book so yeah but that what was funny was that made its way into everything and um they 
the curator was contacted by Much Music that wanted to be live at Assbook, and um, a beer company wanted to be live at Assbook, so give beer near Assbook. So it was like this totally stupid, like, frat voice sounding just like, ah, but that actually was so pop. So I think that might say something about. I don't know. It, it's it's kind of like our big event to market ourselves to the world, and they're really great artists. That you, you kind of have to play that game if you. And and there are some really cool things that, that happen for sure. Like the really really interesting artists are exhibited and showcased and perform. And but it's also kind of a feeding frenzy for marketing. And I think that was an interesting example of just this weird. Like that would that that seemed to capture like something about about this this mega event where people are running around with their camera phones and looking for a spectacle and Aspa fit right in there.